Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. My name is Joshua, and today is our update episode. And not only the update, but also a bunch of random stuff that does not fit into the most recent episodes. This has been filled up more and more the past few updates, and I think it is now just going to be a staple that whatever didn't fit into the previous episodes and whatever comes up and whatever's on my mind will go into the update. So this is it. So we'll look at where we are in season one right now in the podcast, and then I'm going to talk about permaculture, then talk about uh, the Epstein case in general, a little bit about that and how that relates to something that we recently talked about, as well as some other links in current events news. We've got something from JP Morgan smuggling cocaine. We've got Deutsche Bank laundering money and the revolving door of the Defense Department and the government. So there have been many recent events that have just come up and they really fit in really well with the previous few episodes on agorism and um, the rest on the corruption and conspiracy episodes that we did. We talked about some of this stuff, some of these people specifically I mentioned. And so since I saw their names in the news and in the paper, I figured I might as well point it out to you guys. So to begin with, where are we in the podcast? Well, we are in the middle of the agorism section. We have now done the bulk of that, the main three episodes related to roughly government money and education. And so the next episode after this update will be on examples of individuals practicing agorism. And I did finally nail down exactly who that would be. They will be Cody Wilson, who designed and released the first 3D printed gun and is still working on those projects as well as some blockchain projects and things like that. And then Lily Forrester, who is another agorist who moved to Mexico with her boyfriend and they basically went off the grid and outside of the government system and did a lot of things on their own, ran into some trouble too, like most people do when they try to do that. But we'll talk about her as well. And then we'll finally wrap up with the Free State Project, which is a movement of libertarian, liberty-minded individuals who have all chosen to move to one geographic location in the United States to try to change the culture and even the laws and politics of that state just by getting a lot of people who are like-minded together so that they can actually make a difference in a relatively small state. So we'll talk about that. That's some individuals and then individuals working together. And then the final episode in our series on agorism will be our case study, and that one will be on communities that live an agorist lifestyle for the most part. We will get into some Anabaptist groups that are religious groups that kind of separate the way they live from society, some to more degrees than others. Think of the Amish and the Mennonites. And then we'll get into some areas in Mexico that have been fairly interesting. There's a town that kicked out both the cartel and the government and decided to do things on their own. And there are some other towns that have done some similar things that uh, are very much community-focused and very much agorist-focused. And so we'll talk about that and then wrap that up with 
Rojava, and that would be the northeastern part of Syria, mostly, I guess, slightly majority Kurds, and they have declared themselves autonomous as of maybe seven-ish years ago, and so they are roughly a stateless society with very localized governance, and basically they separated themselves from the governments of Turkey and Syria and Iran. And so we'll talk about them and what they set up and what that looks like. So that's the next few episodes. Then we will do the first episode in our next series after those two before we get another update. And that first episode will be on basically the immorality of government. Why is government as a whole and modern governmental systems, doesn't matter which one you pick, why are they all immoral? And I will make the argument that they are immoral and definitely explain that and uh, give the argument for that point of view and that perspective. So that's what we'll do. Then we'll do another update and I'll update you on where we're going from here. But the next section after Gorism is going to be on government. So usually we do an episode on government, an episode on money, and then an episode on education, then a themes episode, then a case study episode. And that's been our pattern this whole season. Well, after this series on agorism, I'm going to change that slightly for the next few. And so instead, what we're going to do is have a full set of three episodes in a row on government, and then a themes episode and a case study episode on that topic, then three in a row on money with a themes and case study episode, and then three in a row on education. So instead of alternating them, they're just going to be in chunks. We'll do a whole set of five episodes on government, five episodes on money, five episodes on education, and all of these will be focused on basically alternatives to the current system, whether they be theoretical or ones that are in practice. Anything from potential political societies and setups that could happen to things like homeschooling and things that are definitely in existence right now. So we'll get into all that, and that's kind of where we're going from here. We're going to get into that. Then we'll get into some futuristic stuff, basically based on the trends that we have been covering and that are going on in the world today. What are some likely scenarios that we're looking at for, say, 50 years in the future or even 100 years in the future? Where where are things going and what are the options there? Now, obviously, I can't see the future and I don't know, but we can look at the trends and see, well, it's very likely to either go this way or that way or that way. And then I can lay out what this way, that way, and that way all look like and what they look like from a perspective of government money and education and related to the things we've been talking about and what to look out for and what that means for us as individuals. So that's the rest of season one, and that's where we're going from here. So let's get into the extra stuff that I wanted to talk about. First off, being permaculture. So this is what did not fit into our agorism episode on, I guess, self-sufficiency, the first one we did, as well as slightly into the next one, but mostly the first one where I talked about food and growing your own food and that kind of stuff. And by the way, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but community gardens is another option where if you don't have room, if you don't have a yard, if you don't have your own house, there is a community garden in most decent sized communities all around the world. And you can basically go there and then you have a little plot and you can grow your stuff on community land. And so you have the option to grow your own food if you don't even have your own place to do it yourself. 
So that's another option. I don't remember if I mentioned that or not in that episode. So I'll mention it here to make sure it's here and the information's out there. And so on to permaculture. Now, permaculture is basically the idea of mimicking natural ecosystems that we see, the way things work in nature, and mimicking that with what we do. And related to what I'm talking about, I'm talking about planting gardens and growing food and that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of different techniques. I'm not going to get into a whole bunch of stuff on permaculture, but there's everything from food forests to building guilds and companion plants, doing swales where you make almost like a ditch that catches water as it runs off, then it soaks in and your plants stay well hydrated instead of the water just running down. You've got things like hugel culture where you bury wood and then mound on top and plant on top and the wood breaks down and you get fungus and all kinds of good stuff and nitrates that then release into the soil and that really makes it really rich and really healthy for whatever it is that you plant on top. There's lots of different techniques, lots of cool stuff, but the one I wanted to mention specifically was food forests. That's something that really fits in with what I had talked about related to living in a gorse lifestyle and self-sufficiency, growing your own food, taking care of yourself, not being reliant on others. Well, a food forest is another really good way that's very different than a garden. So typically, if you grow your own food, you'll do a garden, or maybe you'll plant some fruit trees. And that's something that you can do, and it works well, and there's nothing wrong with that. But a food forest is a totally different approach. The idea is that you basically mimic a forest in the wild. So the way a forest works is that you have a canopy layer, then an understory layer, then you have some smaller trees, and then shrubs, and then some ground covers, and even some root vegetables and root plants that dig down into the soil. And they all work together. They all share nutrients. They give each other stuff. As the canopy layer loses its leaves, then those leaves fall to the ground, and they turn into mulch for the lower plants and help them to stay hydrated and the soil stay moist as well as put nutrients back into the soil as they decompose. And then as trees fall down and they die, well, they'll decompose and they'll grow funguses and they will release nutrients back into soil as well and promote earthworms and all different kinds of stuff. And basically, the whole system works really well together and it's very complex, but it takes care of itself. No one has to maintain a forest. Forests are self-maintaining. So the idea of a food forest is for us to plant our own little miniature forest in a way that is also self-maintaining, that we don't have to deal with a lot, but that is giving us a lot of edible things. We're growing food. So what you do is, for example, you do maybe some nut trees as your canopy layer, and then you plant some bigger bushes that might produce berries or something, maybe like mulberry tree, something like that, that gets decent size and that goes just in front of that. And then just in front and under that would be things like maybe fruit trees. You could do say plums and peaches or something, you know, whatever you're into. And you plant those next and then you go into some bushes and you do some maybe blueberries and blackberries, raspberries, you know, whatever you want. And then out from that, you can do more perennial vegetables. So instead of planting the annuals that you have to plant every year, there are plenty of perennial vegetables like walking onions are one, um, garlic, horseradish, some types of beans and different forms of squashes, grapes, all kinds of stuff. 
and you plant those at the bottom level and then maybe even some root vegetables depending on what zone you're in planting zone the sweet potatoes can be perennial and come back every year and there's plenty of options here so what you do is you basically create this system and you plant this little miniature forest and amongst these edible trees you specifically and strategically plant some companion trees and they help those that are around them. So there are some that will attract certain insects that will then act as predators against the types of insects that would destroy some of your food and some of your plants that you're growing. Some plants would be what are known as nitrogen fixers, where they have really deep roots that are very efficient at getting nutrients out of the soil that other plants can't really access and can't take advantage of. And then what happens is that they draw all this nutrients, they use the nutrients, it's in their leaves, then as their leaves fall, the leaves decompose on the ground around all your other plants and these nutrients come back into the soil in a way that they can absorb it. Now, the other more common strategy would be that you have nitrogen fixer plants that are fast growers and you do what's called chop and drop. So you let them grow somewhat and then maybe three or four times a year you basically chop off the branches maybe you cut it up depending on how big they are and what type of plant it is but you basically strip it you cut it up cut it down to a bit of a nub and then you just lay all the cuttings on the ground around all your plants and that forces them to then decompose and add their nutrients back into the soil and all this and your companion plant this nitrogen fixer it will then just sprout new branches and grow new leaves, and then you just cut it down again. You just keep doing this. Eventually, likely, it will die, and then you just switch it out, or maybe by then your plants are doing so great they don't need this companion plant anymore, and it doesn't have a use, and so it's dead, and you don't replace it. But lots of different options. But overall, I think you get the point that you're planting a system. You're planting this little mini food forest that ideally, if done well, you don't really have to do much. It takes care of itself. You have these larger trees that are shading out certain areas and the smaller ones that are shading out in certain ways. And you have ground covers. You have vines even that might be growing, ideally on your nitrogen fixtures, your companion trees that you don't care about as much. And so you could go, say, grapes on one of these. And you just have all these different plants that are working together in a way that creates a system that is very easy to maintain, and that's what we want. We don't want to spend a lot of time on all this stuff, but not only is it easy to maintain, you're not really having to go out there and weed all the time, you're not having to go replant stuff every year, but also you are not having to buy new stuff every year. You don't have to go out and buy seeds, you don't have to go out and buy plants, you don't have to go out and buy anything. These trees are perennial, which means they come back every year, and so do the bushes, and so do the vegetables on the ground, and all you have to do really is pick them. Now, you might have to weed every once in a while, and you'd probably do chop and drop method with that, where you just cut them, and then you lay them on the ground, and they fertilize the soil. Or if it's something that's really pesky, you get poison ivy in there or something, you might want to dig that up. And so every once in a while, you may have to do this. But in general, you plant it in such a way that the ground's shaded out, the ground's mostly covered in things that you actually want. And also, you would do 
typically a really thick layer of wood chips for mulch that really blocks out anything else coming through and prevents a lot of the weeds and stuff. So the maintenance is very, very minimal, but the yields are really good because since you have such a wide variety of different things, you're attracting a whole lot of different pollinators, lots of different insects, and that really helps promote productivity of your food-bearing trees and plants and shrubs and whatever. And you are also doing this in a way that you're providing a lot of nutrients back into the soil. And these plants are working with each other and helping each other, giving nutrients to each other. And that really makes them a lot healthier. They grow faster, they produce more. And so you are getting so many benefits out of this and you're not having to plant a garden every year and weed every day and all this kind of stuff and pay for stuff. So that's a really good option. That is something that I probably should have put in the agorism episode on self-sufficiency because it's a really good one for that, but I didn't. So here it is now. So on to current events and corruption and conspiracy. So tying back to the previous episode, just before the agorism series, I talked about a lot of different things. And if you remember, hopefully you listened to the update episode. If you're willing to listen to the final bit about Bohemian Grove, even though some of that information was a little graphic and a little rough, so hopefully you didn't listen to that if you were easily disturbed. But regarding all that stuff, so to give you a slight reminder, Bohemian Grove, it's a place where basically all the elite, the rich, the powerful, they meet up once a year out in California, and they go to this secret private place, and they have these mock sacrifices. They have all these statues of giant owls and lots of owl figures everywhere, and there have been many reports of a lot of homosexual activity and prostitution and all this kind of stuff that goes on, a lot of sexual activity that happens kind of out in the open, and there have been prostitution rings that have been busted that are linked with the Bohemian Grove and all this kind of stuff. So I give you that reminder and that um, reference because in the recent news, we have had Epstein come up. And what he has been charged with is something that basically most of us already knew if you were clued into what's going on in these types of circles, but he had been charged with this type of stuff before. It's nothing new at all. But basically, he ran a sex trafficking ring or a prostitution ring, depending on how you want to look at it, and he catered to the elites, to the rich and powerful. Now, the interesting part about this is not only that he catered to people like Trump and Clinton and Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, lots of huge names. You have the CEO of L Brands, which owns Victoria's Secret, and lots of really big names in the corporate world and the political world and multiple countries. But one of the interesting aspects of this is that Epstein had his own private island and his own private plane. They nicknamed the plane the Lolita Express, and that's what he would bring these rich and powerful clients on to his private island. And at least the rumor is you could pretty much have any girls, probably boys, whatever you wanted you could have, and he would provide that for you. And it was kind of an anything goes, very secret, very private deal there. 
and he had this private island where he did that. Well, not only was it a private island, it also had what many people call a temple, but a large building that looks a lot like a temple where these people would go and do whatever it is they want to do, and he would provide it for them. But one of the interesting aspects is that it is reported there are owl visages all over the place throughout this temple, that there are all these symbols and statues and stuff of owls. And then you pair that with the prostitution ring and all the sex trafficking, as well as the fact that this is something for the rich and famous and powerful and the elite class. And it really sounds a lot like the Bohemian Grove. There are a lot of connections there, a lot of similarities. I'm not necessarily saying that they are directly connected and ran by the same person or something like that. Just basically that there are things that go on on that level that really mirror each other and it's a pattern it's not just these random busts with just a few select politicians no this is something that is very rampant there's a lot of corruption there's a lot of stuff that goes on especially in these elite circles and here's just a little example of that and it just reminded me of the bohemian grove and since i just covered that i wanted to mention it here now i did mention that this has come up before epstein has been arrested and actually sentenced for running a prostitution ring with underage employees or whatever you want to call them and when he was sentenced he ended up getting sentenced with 18 months in jail now, when he was in jail, he stayed in a private wing that had no other criminals in it, and he was allowed to leave the prison and go to his office 12 hours a day. So basically, he got to do whatever he wanted, had his own private resort in a prison, and only had to sleep there, plus maybe have some meals if he wanted, if he was willing to eat that crap. Probably not. He probably just went to his office and had some fancy meal, you know, catered to him, but whatever. It will be definitely interesting to see what happens here, and people can theorize what's going on, really. Is this a real bust? Is it just going to get covered up again, pretty much, and swept under the rug? Is it some power struggle amongst the elite class where they're trying to out each other and you know overthrow some other power group, maybe take out the Clintons through this scandal? You know, Who knows what? Who knows what's going on? But the reality is that there's a lot of really bad stuff and that aspect of it is true and hopefully as much comes out about it as we can possibly hope for because when things like this are happening they really deserve to be punished people deserve to be brought to justice and although i'm not extremely optimistic hopefully something will come out of this this time so the next thing I was going to mention would be J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan was brought up multiple times in our Corruption and Conspiracy episodes, and I saw their name in the news recently again. I was both surprised and not surprised to see that a J.P. Morgan ship, it was one of the largest container ships that's on the ocean right now, was busted carrying roughly $1 billion worth of cocaine, the largest drug bust of that type in history. So that is kind of a big deal and doesn't look really good for J.P. Morgan. Now, I'm sure they'll say they knew nothing about it, you know, some rogue employees, whatever. But if you look at the map at where the ship stopped at, it was... I think three or four countries through South and Central America, and then three or four states in the United States before it actually got busted at a port. 
So there's a lot more going on here. You can assume, I think safely, that this is probably not the only ship that has ever carried cocaine on this route, in this ring, and whatever was going on. So there's probably a lot more involved here. Related to that line of thought, I did look up a little bit about this and saw something from a man named Gabriel Feltran. He is a sociology professor at the Federal University of Seo Carlos, who has researched illicit markets in Brazil. He said about this incident, and I quote, Seven containers of cocaine, a drug sold in grams. How could it be shipped without a sophisticated logistics system? How many controls were cheated in different countries? How many controllers have been paid? How could such money be laundered without official banks, without the financial markets? Impossible not to think that illegal markets are completely entangled with the formal ones. So, yeah, I think he is right about that. There has to be a lot involved here. This is not just a random set of, you know, two rogue employees that are helping out a drug cartel. There's a lot more going on. It's got to be entangled with some of the legit stuff and... Because of that, it's got to be connected more than likely with the company. You know, how do you launder the money, like you mentioned? How do you deal with the logistics of the shipping? All this kind of stuff. Port authorities. There's a lot involved. So, yeah, JP Morgan might not be completely out of the corruption and conspiracy game. Related to this slightly would be Deutsche Bank, one of the other main large banks that are international in scope, and they have been busted recently for money laundering and some different things they were doing there that looked really sketchy, and it's not looking very good for them. They have even admitted that they will probably get busted with some really big fines, lose some customers, and it's not looking good from their own mouth. So I pulled up an article. This one's from The Guardian, and I'll read just two little paragraphs about it to give you an idea of what's going on. It says, Deutsche Bank was embroiled in a vast money laundering operation dubbed the Global Laundromat. Russian criminals with links to the Kremlin, the old KGB, and its main successor, the FSB, used the scheme between 2010 and 2014 to move money into the Western financial system. The cash involved could total $80 billion, detectives believe. Shell companies typically based in the UK loaned money to each other. Companies then defaulted on these large, fictitious debts. Corrupt judges in Moldova authenticated the debt, with billions transferred to Moldova and the Baltics via a bank in Latvia. Deutsche Bank was used to launder the money via its corresponding banking network, effectively allowing illegal Russian payments to be funneled to the U.S., the European Union, and Asia. So yeah, it doesn't look very good for Deutsche Bank either, another large international bank that's actually being outed for some corrupt activity. We'll see what comes of that. The next thing that I saw in a headline as well in the recent days was about the head of the IMF. So I actually mentioned this lady, Christine Lagarde. I think it was in the episode on the House of Rothschild, which was a Patreon-exclusive episode. So if you're a patron, then you have access to that. Hopefully you have listened to that and taken advantage. If you're not a patron, then you probably have not heard that name. I don't think I mentioned it in the episode on financial corruption and conspiracy, but what I had mentioned there was that 
Christine Lagarde and Lynn Rothschild were both at a conference in 2014 called the Inclusive Capitalism Conference. And at this conference, you had a third, it was estimated a third of the world's wealth all at this one small conference. And one of the main things that they were discussing there was that greed is a problem and we need to solve it. So that reminded me a lot of the Federal Reserve, where you had the meeting beforehand at Jekyll Island, where it was also reported that roughly a third of the world's wealth was represented. There was also Rothschild representation there, and there was also banking interests there. Now, this is the IMF, not necessarily an international bank, but I think you get the point. And what they were doing at the Federal Reserve meeting was basically setting up regulations for themselves and through it setting up a scheme where they can basically scam an entire country and run an entire country's monetary system. Well, that kind of seems similar to what's going on here where you have the rich and powerful, a third of the world's wealth, and they were at a conference in 2014 with Rothschilds and banking interests and talking about how, oh, we have this problem with these greedy, wealthy people, and we need to do something about it. And yeah, I'm sure they come up with some ideas of how they regulate themselves, and it probably ends up really benefiting themselves to a great degree. And yeah, you get the point. I, I at least personally noticed a direct parallel here. I don't know if you will make the same connections and have the same opinion, but that's at least mine. So that was interesting. But the reason why I bring it up right now is that... Christine Lagarde was in a headline that I just read a few days ago, and it was talking about how the former head of the IMF is now moving to head the European Central Bank. And so as we have talked about in the Corruption and Conspiracy episodes on the revolving door, where they basically just bounce around from institution to institution, and how the central banks and the IMF and the World Bank, Bank of International Settlements, Federal Reserve, how they're all tied in together, all basically with the same schemes, the same plans. You control a monetary system, you control the flow of money, you therefore control the country, in a sense, and therefore the people, and that is where all the control really is And so it was interesting to see another one of these examples where the head of one just bumps over to be the head of another. And then related to this idea of the revolving door was another headline that I saw. Actually, it was this morning, at least as of this recording, I saw that we are going to have a new Secretary of Defense. So the person who was the actor acting Secretary of Defense, it was acting because Trump hadn't filled the position, was Patrick Shanahan. And he is a former Boeing executive, of course. And so there's the revolving door as well. But the new one is now going to be Mark Esper, who was a former Raytheon executive. So again, another defense contractor, of course, revolving door. And he... If you look at his life, he was in the military, then he worked for a few senators, and then he went to Raytheon and worked as a lobbyist and worked on managing giant contracts and big deals and that kind of stuff, and then went from being a lobbyist for Raytheon now to possibly being the Secretary of Defense. I'm not sure if that's been confirmed yet or not, but it looks like it's going to go through. So that's very interesting. As I looked up the details, I'd forgotten his name. And so I looked that up and I found an article that was interesting. And I'll read just a paragraph here where they talk about the revolving door aspect. They say, and I quote, 
Esper is one of many lobbyists to take a spin through the revolving door into and out of the Trump administration. Other high-profile examples include Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Andrew Wheeler, a former oil and gas lobbyist, and Federal Aviation Administrator Dan Elwell, a former American Airlines lobbyist who has communicated with his ex-colleagues as a government official. The current Army Undersecretary is Ryan D. McCarthy, a combat veteran and former Lockheed Martin executive who worked on the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. So there are some good specific examples of the revolving door and what it looks like, and some specific names of people who are currently involved in this wonderful little circle that goes on between government and corporations and contracts and all this stuff. So that's it. That's all I had. I just thought these were interesting. I saw all of these things in headlines as I was reading the paper over the course of this past week and thought for sure I should include it in here. I was just going to do an update and permaculture, but instead, you know, I might as well mention these things since they do relate to things that we have been discussing and it just seemed interesting so that's it for this episode thank you very much for listening thank you if you have shared this podcast with other people or on social media that is extremely helpful thank you to those of you who have sent in emails about requests and questions and comments and that kind of stuff feedback is always greatly appreciated good bad ideally both and so please continue to do that. If you have not done that before, please send me an email. Give me some feedback. Tell me about what you like. It is very helpful for me and helps me provide you with what you want. So good for everybody. The email address is in the show notes. Also, the Twitter account is on there as well. And the website where you can look at an outline and resources, stream the podcast directly, whatever you want to do, you can go to the website, do it there. The Patreon page is linked there. I had mentioned the Rothschild episode was an exclusive. So if you're a patron and the suggested amount for that is if you give $4 a month, so roughly a dollar an episode, then you get access to exclusive episodes and ways to directly communicate with me with your input almost guaranteed to be put into practice as well. And so there are different perks there depending on what you give and what you decide to do. There's even some merchandise like free hat, t-shirt, whatever, stuff like that. So you can check it out. The link is in the show notes for that page as well. And I think that's everything. So again, thank you for listening. Please come back next time as we get a little more into some specific examples and this time wrapping up our agorism series i'm out peace thank you for listening goodbye